actors to places. Thank you, places. It's time to exit stage death. Welcome back to Exit Stage Death. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Limerick. And I'm Emily Martinez. And these are the true chilling stories behind your favorite Broadway shows. And we're doing it. We are doing it. Welcome to the first episode, everyone. I'm so excited. Um, Hi. (laughs) Hi, everyone. Uh, Well, I'm one of your hosts, Maddie Limerick. I am a uh, professional costume designer and general theater lover. And as always, I have my lovely co-host, M. Martinez. Hi, folks. Um, I am predominantly a musical theater actor and content creator on YouTube and the internet space. And I don't know about you. Well, Maddie, you've been doing podcasts for a long time, and I've admired you for so long. But this is my first podcast that I've finally, like, jumped in, and I am i cannot be more excited and scared and um, all the feelings. All the, the full body chills, if you will. Full, full body chills. full body chills. I am beaming. And I do think that I have to say that, like, when I approached you with this, this is purely because of the work that you've been doing on your own YouTube channel with a series that you called Bloody Broadway mm-hmm. that I have to attest is, like, the full inspiration for this. Also, just because, like, you and I did a production of Hair a few years ago together, and we've stayed uh, friends online since this. You've been on my show before. But also, like, we have this mutual connection of true crime in addition to musical theater. And I was just so inspired by what you did on Bloody Broadway that I was like, and we have to do this. When you... We have to do this okay so i love my series bloody broadway and it's it was like a like a baby i birthed during the height of the pandemic and then i was just like i i always felt like i just wished i was talking to someone in the room with me mm-hmm. um especially in my banter like i literally have parts in the video where i'm doing jokes to myself and i'm like that should be another person <laughs> like this is just this should really be another person on the other side laughing like i'm laughing at my own jokes here this is a new level but um i'm just like when you approach me with this idea i went This is the answer I've been hoping for is just to bring those types of stories because Bloody Broadway is um, predominantly a true crime um, YouTube series that I created that was like, I felt like there were so many superstitions and ghost stories and and horrific events that happen in theater, which we will get into so many of them on this podcast. But I just felt like I was like, no one's talking about this in our space. Mm -hmm. And there's so many... Um, storytellers and theater performers and mm-hmm. and theater lovers alike that are so into true crime and there's different reasons behind it whether it's the psychology of the people who do the crimes whether it's the general storytelling whether it's the spookiness whether it's so many different elements and, and telling stories about people whose truths need to be heard and 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 um, mm-hmm. systems that need to be corrected and and I was like, I want to be a part of that. And I, I was just, but I kept feeling like I need, I need help, number one. But also, like, I, 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 I thrive in these conversations when I have someone to talk with. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I felt so honored when you approached because I was like, I, I almost gave up on Bloody Broadway. So I was just like, this is a new way to, like, bring new life to it. And with someone that I trust and knows gets it. And so I'm just so excited and I feel so honored. So thank you for reaching out. 
Of course, I'm so happy that we are here. And this first episode, when we were throwing stuff around, I wanna—I was gonna do one that was a lot heavier, um, and we're gonna get to that one later in the this series, just because I love it. Um, what we're doing with this show, just for everybody out there listening, um, we're gonna talk about the true stories that inspired a lot of the of like really well-known Broadway musicals and plays, but we're also gonna talk about really interesting. Um, I don't want to even say true crime, but like death aspects and ghost stories and like things that have happened, (laughs) the macabre, the things that have happened in the theater for like the last thousand years that nobody talks about. And so today's story Mm. uh, that we're starting off with a ghost story for everyone uh, that I have personal firsthand experience with. And it is just so interesting to me that I wanted to share that with the world first uh, before we get into uh, you know some of the heavier things. So we're, we're always going to try to alternate the stories and that is why we're also here to give commentary and just chat back and forth because uh, you know we, we need to be uncomfortable, we need to be vulnerable to talk about things, but we also need to laugh to get through it at the end of the day. Absolutely. I don't know if anybody's ever seen a play or a movie that made everybody so uncomfortable that the audience laughed and they didn't mean to laugh, but it was just because that is our knee-jerk reaction and then you get the giggles Uh, and you can't stop (laughs) you can't stop and then the poor actors on stage are just literally burying their souls and the audience (laughs) is giggling and it's just oh it's a bad mismatch of everything so uh m today i want to share with you the story of one of the true few broadway hauntings Mm. and that's the story of the belasco ghost I've heard tales. So I'm going to start with a personal story with this one. Okay. So I was working the last like month of the Broadway run of a musical called Passing Strange, which uh, not a lot of people remember, but it was an amazing show. It was up for the Tony alongside of In the Heights mm-hmm. in 2008. So, which was also the year that like Xanadu was up for a Tony. So it was a strange year. Um, and they, Spike Lee came in, filmed it, so there's an amazing DVD uh, production of it available. I highly recommend everyone watching it. Um, and so I hadn't worked at this theater before. I normally worked at the Gershwin. And so this is at the Belasco. Just a pleasant little name drop. Just, you know, I just worked at the I, Gershwin. I, the I Gersh. was working at the Gershwin. <laughs> I'd been working nine to five next to normal, you know, little shows. Um, but I always got excited to go in and see new theaters. And this is one of the like six oldest theaters in New York on Broadway. It opened like right at the turn of the 1900s as like the contemporary idea of Broadway and American theater was really booming. And so every day when you locked up the theater, we have to leave last. I did merchandise. And so you lock up everything in a creepy little basement downstairs and then you have to exit across the stage. Well, on my way out across the stage, all of the house lights are off. The ghost lights are already out uh, for this very reason. And as I'm exiting in from the dark little shadow depths, I hear this loud banging of like chairs and things. And it just sounded like someone was up there cleaning, messing around. They were doing some work, something. And so when I got to the stage door attendant, I was like, uh, you know, hey, there's I think some people still up in the mezzanine. I don't know if you know about it, uh, but there was just a lot of noise and it was very weird. And he just looked at me and said, well, did you say goodnight to the theater owner? Mm. And I responded, no, I didn't realize the Schubert's were here tonight because the Schubert's own the yeah. house. And I was like, I didn't think they'd still be here. And he literally, I mean, 
anybody that's worked in a Broadway house or is from New York or New Jersey knows these like gruff dudes that work the local one gigs. And so he literally rolled his eyes at me and, uh, and he's like, follow me back. And he's like, follow me. We went back on stage. We got like downstage center and he pointed up to the balcony and said, anytime you leave, you need to look up and make sure you wish Mr. Belasco a good night. His seat is up there. And I was like, Okay, whatever. Talk about a ghost needing validation. Right, right. Well, I think as we get... You'll learn. Oh I mean, we, we all know those theater men, especially those straight theater men. Uh, I and I literally laughed. I looked at him and he just gave me that like stone cold look that only like a Staten Islander can give you. Absolutely. And I just looked up and waved and said, good night, Mr. Belasco. Thanks for such a gorgeous theater. And am I kid you not a seat closed and we could smell cigar smoke. And he's like, you're good to go. Uh, this is an audio. Uh, this is an audio <laughs> platform, but my, they can't see your face. My mouth is a gape. <laughs> and I kid you not that like the cigar smell of cigars lingered out of the theater with me and the next day i was texting the other guy that normally works there a lot and and i was like joking about it and he literally said you absolutely have to say good night and i literally thought everybody was bullshitting me (sighs) but for the rest of the time because i'm a very superstitious theater person i would always wave every night and i'd say good night mr belasco and there would always be the sound of a chair closing every single night and i was one of the last two people out of the house so it wasn't even like somebody fucking with me i and boy oh boy listen there's so much to talk about today (laughs) listen i see what did i Maddie, tell, please tell our viewers what I, what I said I had to do right before we started. Em, em sang a little ditty and said, I'm going to close the door so I don't see some weird shit behind me. Because <laughs> your girl lives alone right now. Not our husband's on tour. So I'm like, I don't need this in my <laughs> And did I literally not tell you that because I, between this and like writing ghost stories casually, my door literally flew open at midnight the other night and it was probably just the cat or one of the dogs like Katie and I didn't latch it but I like I am such a weenie hut junior human being for someone who's like delving into true crime and like now loves horror it is such the dichotomy of being like I love it but like oh the Satan the devil it's gonna get me the demons they're coming Oh, I'm sweating. My lower back. Uh, well, so, you know, you're a lot, lifelong theater kid. I'm a lifelong theater kid. And every time you go into a new theater, mm-hmm. some asshole is always like, don't worry about the ghosts. They're never going to hurt you. And you know what? It's always just some stupid story about a little girl or a hometown hero that does community theater. Now, I will say, where we met at Muhlenberg. Yes. There are some vibes in that theater space, oh, especially if you've been in the costume storage. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've um, seen stuff. But, I want to, well, I also want to share with everybody, there are broken gravestones in the costume storage. Did you not know about that? There are literal, there were, I think just, uh, just being has had them moved out, but they literally, my first summer, Caroline was like, Caroline and Hunter were both like, oh yeah, the gravestones. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? So they weren't, there are, they were real. They were real. Okay. Two of them were broken. Mm. And they were against that back wall. You know back where the like nice storage is under the like vent. And I, I'm describing this space for everybody. But it is literally under a stage. Everything is stone. It's dark. Yeah. Literally it feels like impending doom. 
It's like a bunker. It feels like a bunker. It's a, and there's a little secret hideaway that if you move a piece of wood, there is a ladder down 20 feet and it looks like someone's been living in the space in the walls at Muhlenberg College okay. for 20 years okay. um, um, in costume absolutely storage. Absolutely not. Two words. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely not. Full <laughs> sentence on my end. Absolutely Full not. fucking stop. Full stop. So, I mean, you know, with as many of those kinds of stories that are out there, would you believe that with with the exception, there's always people telling bullshit stories. Mm-hmm. There's always some sort of ghost stories. But in the entirety of the community of Broadway, yeah. as we know it, there are only three ghosts that are notated as being seen frequently. The rest have been like one-off options, one-off things. And when I found that out with this story, and that two of those ghosts are in the theater that we're talking about today, I was shocked. Like, I, I still like I don't know about you, but I have a hard time believing that like as old as some of these theaters are, they don't have a theater ghost. Oh yeah. Like, like the Lyceum is the oldest one, and like I know that people have literally died in the theater. But when you look back through, so Playbill, this is just Playbill Vault every year as part of the Broadway uh, f- um, yearbook mm-hmm. has a section on ghost stories that have been added to the thing so every year in that hardcover book there are pages of new stories added to existing broadway ghost stories sick i didn't know that and most of them literally come from the belasco which we're going to talk about today and then the new am which Mm -hmm. um you are we're going to talk about in another episode because you brought her up in our thing and that is the tragic life of olive thomas who was a zigfeld dancer at the new amsterdam which is now owned by disney theatrics but Oh, you guys, I'm getting chills just talking. I know. I'm, I'm trying to ignore the chills because I'm scared, but I'm also very excited. But, but I'm also so excited. <laughs> so we're just going to jump into the story. Okay. Um, so the ghost today that we're talking about and the man behind the ghost is actually extraordinary because he literally revolutionized Broadway Mm -hmm. and changed the future of theater to become what we know as the future of theater. So David Belasco was known as the century man, but he was also known as the Bishop of Broadway, which is really funny considering he was Jewish, but he always wore like a priest cassock around because he thought of the theater as a sanctuary, as his religion, all of these things. And it's also because pretty much once this theater was built, he never left the theater. Yeah. Like he wouldn't leave the space like at all. Um, And so again, it's partially because he was uh, seen in a a priest cassock most of the time. Um, Very method. The theater. Very, very very method. Very method. Um, And not to shock anyone, uh, the Bishop of Broadway is quite the ladies' man, or at least he thinks he is. Uh, (laughs) But we'll get to that soon. Uh, So the theater opened uh, as the Stuyvesant Theater. It cost about $750,000 at the time, um, which is about $18.2 million today, which when you think about is astounding because like the Marriott Marquis, which is currently where Beetlejuice is moving into, Mm -hmm. but where things like 9 to 5 have played. um, It is famously a hotel that is rumored that it was built by the mob and the mob needed the theater, so they pushed it through. And if you've ever worked at the Marquis, if you work in front of house, there's no running, uh, there's no plumbing. 
in front of house. So like the bar has to like take what, I don't know if it's been fixed, but back when I worked there, also I don't want to get a shot for this story, but uh, you know, it's one of those famously like during the revival of Times Square, uh, this theater was built. But it also famously, other than like Thoroughly Modern Millie and Drowsy Chaperone, a lot of things have not lived very long that have played there. Um, But theaters like that and um, when they redid um, where Lion King is playing or like when they redid the Gershwin where Wicked is playing, those cost about $30 million to build. So 18.2 is still not too bad when you're thinking about the kind of theater. Now, have you ever seen a show at the Belasco? Um, I don't think I have because I know that uh, wasn't Girl from the North Country just there. Yes, it was just there. It's where Hedwig uh, played. It's where um, Women on the Verge, which we'll talk about, uh, Passing Strange. It's had a lot of like plays as well yeah, uh, through there. And it's, there before. it's truly something that if you haven't seen the space, of uh, the grandeur that I'm going to kind of describe is not really uh, going to come across. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first three years, it was called the Stuyvesant, and that opened in 1907. Uh, uh, but within three years, David Belasco went, you know what? This is my theater. We're naming it after me. <laughs> this is my space. So three years into the opening, it was renamed the Belasco uh, after the creative genius himself. And he truly called this theater home yeah. because he lived in the theater. Um, so it was known to be also the house of many theatrical firsts because of the kind of human that David was. And it also, not just in tech, but it was a landmark theater because it would kick off hundreds of really iconic acting performances, including Marlon Brando and Judy Holiday, both got their starts there. Uh, Judy Holiday in the first uh, production of Blythe Spirit, which was there. Mm. So this is just a little background. It's based around the little theater movement. And the idea was that like, you're in a space that feels uh, like your living room. Like you, even if you are sitting at the most back seat, the most side seat, you can see every aspect of the stage and it feels like you were in a living room intimacy level. Mm. So a lot of new kinds of theater were coming out uh, that would drive towards this kind of like realism in theater and away from the very kind of presentational techniques of like Sandra Bernhardt and Gilbert and Sullivan that were really dominating that kind of previous century. And in addition, when they were building it, to just kind of tell you the person that Belasco is, all of the glass, including the windows and the lighting fixtures, were designed by Tiffany's. Oh, my God. Uh, and so they're these ornate stained glasses. That's why, truly, if you've never seen the Belasco, I highly recommend anybody walking past, if you can get into the lobby, just walk past and see it. It's beautiful. Yeah, I'm just looking and at pictures even, online right now. It's, like, gorgeous. Oh. And it's and it's really a shame because when I worked there, it was a shithole. Like they had let everything just deteriorate. Um, and so a lot of things that they did for the first time were they got rid of the chandelier, which was very classic in all theaters, because theater before this had been like the center of royalty, been the center of status. And this is also the point where we're seeing everyone come back to the theater. Mm-hmm. They were making it accessible to, and we were, you know, they were telling the stories of Chekhov and Ibsen and those kinds of things where you are in the living room with the three sisters those kinds of things um and so 
all of the glass fixtures on the wall and in the ceiling were round. They were half domes, or they were domes, they were half circles, so that nothing was hanging in the way of you seeing mm. the show. And a really iconic artist named Everett Shin did all of these stunning murals in the walls and kind of anywhere that there was free space. He just filled with art and decadence and beauty that still, like, as soon as they dimmed the theater, um, which was huge at the time because he was obsessed with technology and machinery. So when you're thinking the beginning of the 1900s, what do you think tech theater-wise? Like, think away from where we are. What do you think when you, when you think, like, turn of the 19th century or 20th century for tech theater? Uh, a lot of danger. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, lighting that was probably either super flammable or... Um, kind of not well looked after and like I, I like I feel like a lot of like heavy lifting like like I think of like um what are the what's like the police system like like yeah. sailors like pulling ropes yep. Yep. <laughs> so he was obsessed with like technology and machinery at the time which again we are just like industrial revolution we are uh the the rebuilding after the civil war coming into the 1900s and so he was obsessed with kind of modernizing everything this man developed a 65 dimmer channel lighting board he developed the modern lighting system oh. so that designers and technicians could easily set the mood of a scene at a moment's notice so this is the emergence of electricity into theater so he pushed for like doing the electronics he used the first um, um actual mechanical electric elevated stage uh and so like a lot of things that we know that are like moving theater i mean yes we know that like technical theater goes back to like kabuki and bunraku theater yeah. and chinese opera and and things but like we're talking Everything that we've seen in your most modern spectacle all started in this theater. Wow, um, cool. And so this was all really part of why he was doing what he was doing. So every time you came to see a production that Belasco did, you knew it was going to just be the tits. It was going to be yeah. amazing. Like the newest and the, the newest and the brightest yeah. and the yeah. shiniest. Absolutely. And that's also like to the point where like, the theater would still have had the like house lights on. And so I believe I was reading that this is one of the first times that like they took the entire house down to bring lights up on stage. Oh. And so it was one of those where the audience was literally brought into the world in a way that they hadn't before, which I think is cool. Now I'm sure that... somebody out there's going to be like, um, actually matter. But, uh, <laughs> no, that's, I mean, talk about the first time you get transported into like the world of theater, like, Mm -hmm. That's a that's something that we absolutely take for granted now. Yeah. Well, it's expected. Like thing I mean, really, thanks to like Andrew Lloyd Webber and the spectacles of the nineteen eighties, like you know, I mean, and then going towards like even things like hairspray and wicked and, and things, you know. The bitch flies eight times a week. Like, we expect that level of, you know, mm -hmm. we're even now thinking about, like, Dear Evan Henson, like, the emergence of digital storytelling within theater. Like, this is that next set. Like, I think, I think Mr. Belasco would fucking love the idea of projections oh, yeah. in many ways, but I think he would also hate it because it does lack the intimacy and realness that he was going for in his theater. Mm -hmm. Now, like many theaters do, all the stunning aspects of this theater were totally allowed to decay and just become decrepit until about 10 years ago. Uh, it was 20, 
2009, they closed the last show, which I think is Joe Turner's Come and Gone. And then it wouldn't be until Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown a year and a half later would open. And they completely, the Schubert's, redid everything. They sent all of the glass to Tiffany's to be rebuilt, repaired, buffed out. They scraped all of the 1960s and 70s paint that covered the murals off. So they restored the theater to the literal like opening day beauty. Wow. And so I do have a story about Women on the Verge that we're going to close with. So okay. I'm not going to share it now. But, um, you know, it was a shame. Now, I keep saying that he lived in the theater and you guys are going, ha, ha, ha. No, 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 no. Truly, there is an apartment duplex that is above the theater. And this was one of the first buildings in it with mechanical elevators to get you all the way up to the theater. It is a 10 room duplex that is in the top floors above. And this is where he lived, he entertained, his shows would rehearse there. So anybody that would be renting the space or uh, because he had a hand in every production that opened during his lifetime, they rehearsed in the the duplex there were parties it was just cacophonous and so it was where he would entertain people would come but it was also an art museum because he loved unusual and erotic art and come on get it come on get it Blasco. come on get it queen which is really funny when you look at him because he's very much just like um sheepish older looking like white dude with like gray hair but they're all the also always the biggest pervert so like i get it um red flags a little bit um so yeah but and so it's just really straight like all they he is described as eccentric strange and unusual but one of the most happy people in the world but like i said before he was also known as quite the ladies man he would Anything now that we would consider as like uh, you would report to your equity monitor, mm-hmm. like he was responsible for. Like he would like bring flowers and like sneak little cheek kisses and pinch bottoms and things that I do not condone and I do not think it's appropriate. But it is what he was very well known for. And I mean, talk about the power he had. The amount the of power. The literal power. And that's that's one of those things that when, you know, this is a jovial ghost story, but it's also like this aspect of like how much of this story now is revisionist because we only know the aspects of the people that were close to him. And so they're the only ones that are going to tell the story, but in their way, mm-hmm. we're not going to hear the stories about the, you know, the women Lord there. There are lots of stories that we do hear of women that were Lord there to like be actresses, but then they were thrown out of shows and all these things. And he was a shrewd man. He was a hard man. Like he was apparently a very difficult director. He was a hard producer to work with and which is expected. And again, I'm not, agreeing with it but it is an aspect of this kind of aspect of time because it's Mm -hmm. when individual companies still produced a lot of things on their own and a lot of this little theater movement which is actually where most community theater comes out of is this little theater movement Mm -hmm. it's about taking the theater back to your communities um and so the the this and the helen hayes on broadway are the only two of the little theaters quote unquote that are left uh but yeah no i'm glad you brought that up because it's one of those things where it's like, this is fun, but it's also like, we got to talk about Oh, yeah, absolutely. But this aspect of being a ladies' man would follow him into the afterlife with his death when he passed in 1931. So really, he's kind of at the, like, top of his producing game for, like, the last 20 years of his life and is, like, the playboy of Broadway. All of this and is, like, the, the, the who's who. But the duplex would be locked with his death and would never really truly be used again. And it is still sitting there today, 
pretty much unmoved and unbothered. A lot of things have happened during the time because, you know, people bought the theater, it changed hands, people went through and like ransacked it. But um, there's a really actually great video that I'm gonna put on our social media that Playbill was allowed to explore back in 2010 when the renovations were happening. And it's fucking eerie. There are definitely little light, the little light starburst and things. Like he is there, he is walking through that tour with them and is very proud that they are in his home. Um, and he's like, look at my lamp. So- Look, look at, at my, my lamp. Look at the original Tiffany's. Look, look, look at this. It's an original Ziegfeld girl. She hasn't ever left. Um, look but at these he plates. Was, these plates are so nice. Look, look at my plates. The plates are so nice. Oh, Ziegfeld himself on these plates. <laughs> it's China. Uh, but he was an actor. He was a producer, director, and truly changed the face of theater in his time. But M, we're here to talk about the spooky shit. So know, let's talk about spooky. the spooky shit. Uh, you know, I I wouldn't be I wouldn't be able to be a good designer dramaturg if I didn't talk the history a little bit because oh. it's why yeah. it literally affects how the way his ghost haunts. Now a lot of you are probably rolling your eyes and going, "There ain't no ghost," but y'all, this motherfucker's there. I don't know. I guess it's that idea that like your energy is so tied to a space mm-hmm. that like I feel like they if they ever brought this theater to the ground, he would be so angry that he would arguably be like the villain in Ghostbusters 5. I was just like, thinking it just Ghostbusters. Be, it was very much like a Ghostbusters thing. So since his death, they kept a seat for him because he had a seat in the mezzanine that was his seat where you know every director goes to a high point to watch when you're in tech, rehearsals, those things. Um, but his ghost has been seen in the boxes of the theater, uh, in the boarded up and unused elevators. The elevators are, do not, they have not been working. Nobody uses them. And even the elevators inside the theater that are used to go from floors have been heard in the middle of performances, running at all hours of the day and night when no one is in them, they are boarded up. They, and you could say, oh, it's an electricity glitch. But we're also talking 1910. These are old, rickety, loud, basic, mechanical pulley systems you cannot explain that away full parties and rehearsals have been heard through the locked doors as much as three and four stories below the penthouse in the theater during the day it is intense and a lot of the actors that have been in here have all have stories. Now, he appears after a lot of shows. Almost every show that has ever played there. He, the actors have seen him standing up. He approaches the actors. He will approach the edge. His voice has been heard trying to give notes. He has walked up and told actors that he loved their performance in a show. He's given actresses notes. Oh, of course. In a show a, before. A fucking actors course. too. But, um, and again, <laughs> when they haven't seen him, uh, you know, during tech rehearsals, he's seen in the mezzanine standing to give notes and then he'll like disappear. One of the biggest points when they really started noticing is anytime there's an animal or dog in a show, mm-hmm. there is one spot on the stage, which is where he would come to give notes or when he was watching something, it's where he would stand. And the dogs would always growl at the exact same spot on the stage at 4 p.m. every day. I could not find why 4 p.m. was important, but between performances from the 40s, 60s, 80s, 90s, and today, anytime there's been a dog on stage, 
Um, or also like anytime there's been a small child in the show, there's they get really weird. They they get upset. Mm. They get like around certain. Um, and again, uh, actresses have felt their bottoms pinched when no one was around them. Um, and now this story is insane. And it's where, if everyone remembers, I said the Belasco has two ghosts. So one day, oh God, an actress, I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> yep, there's a second ghost. There's a second ghost. Now this one's a little more elusive, and we're not a hundred percent sure if they are tied to Belasco. But with his premonition for women in his lifetime, there are a couple theories. So one day, while she was showering uh, alone in her dressing room, this was in the late seventies or early eighties. Um, the the dressing room door to like her shower flew open, like just flew up and slammed into the door. No one was there, but there was a glowing blue sphere. No. And like just this radiating ball of energy. Two words. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Am <laughs> I think you just found the catchphrase for the show. Absolutely not. <laughs> Two words. Absolutely not. That'll be the first merch. Um, and so this is going to be a really good segue into that second ghost. Okay. Like many theaters in New York, Times Square in the 60s was cacophonous. Mm. And the 70s were worse and the 80s were even worse. Um, but a lot of theaters <laughs> just fell apart. And with the rise of places like the Cheetah, even though that's where Hair started off Broadway in Studio 54, which is now owned by a roundabout theater company, the Belasco became a strip club for a short amount of time in the 1950s and 60s. I get it. Uh, now, there's no one story about who the second ghost is or really how she got there, but she is always a lady in blue with like dark, dark brown, dark red, sometimes little sandy blonde. Um, she's a young woman in her mid to late 20s, but she's always seen in a blue gown that's a little out of her time. Mm. There's stories of a young dancer who unfortunately hung herself in the basement of the theater um, while it was a strip club. But there's also so many young women who were involved in the aspects of Belasco's life. Um, and she has been seen almost as much as Belasco's ghost. Now, she's not been violent, but she'll sometimes be seen next to him in the box. Um, she'll sometimes be seen on her own in the theater. Often she'll be seen around costumes or on the stage alone. Uh, under the stage where there used to be like the crossover or like where the elevator would come up and show all the dancing girls and things, um, she has been seen in the basement. Now, I've never seen her, but a lot of people have seen her. Um, and so that's kind of her story. There's not a lot to her. She will appear to people, um, but she's not always tied to him. Um, but no one could find like, because uh, they, they even kept like really immersive records of like who the companies were at the time and like who the, the companies of actors were. And they haven't been able to pinpoint exactly who she is. Um, I like to, to err on the side that she is probably um, tied to him in his life somehow or that he just appeared to her so much in her lifetime that maybe it drove her insane and she did kill herself mm -hmm. or she was just, maybe she fell in love with him and his legacy because again, she doesn't quite fit into the same timeline that he does appearance wise, mm -hmm. but nobody ever also talks about the dress that she's in. They just say that she's in a blue gown, um, which is very normal because sciency of ghosty things, you know, if you were an apparition presenting, there takes a lot of energy to like create an image. Yeah. So it's also like typically when we're taking in things that aren't actually there, our brains can't focus on one thing. Um, 
But I do want to say there is a full period of time where not a single person saw any of the ghosts, where the ghost literally left the theater. So, Em, I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard of a show called the Rocky Horror Show. <gasps> Before it was a cult it. movie. No. Never heard of it. Never, never heard of her. Honestly, I don't know. I don't know her. Never seen her. Never, you don't know Rocky Horror? I'm a oh, my God. Fan. Oh, my God. Em! Oh! I'm a failure to theater. No, it's fine. Um, So Rocky Horror, before it was a cult classic movie, ran one month on Broadway at the Belasco. Now, this story, there are a couple different takes of like when the ghost disappeared in the 70s. But it can all be said that it did happen in the 70s, which is funny because uh, apparently the ghost during rehearsals... Like, he approached someone and said, I don't care for this, and was, like, gone. And, of course, you know, how those things are. But I, I feel like this is something Richard O'Brien would have talked about, um, who created a record. But, yeah, apparently during the month the show lasted on Broadway, it ran one month, the ghost was never seen, and those kinds of things. Now, during the refurb, as modern Broadway producers do, they don't always side with the history of the space and so during the refurb they took away Belasco's seat (gasps) and so when Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown opened uh, didn't go well Um, so I'm not going to share names but I posted on social media looking for people to share stories of interacting with any of the ghosts. And Daniel Breaker has some great one. Neil Patrick Harris, um, Rebecca Naomi Jones, some really great performers that have performed in the space have some awesome ghost stories. They're all available on Playbill. I'll post them on our social media. Um, but uh, this is a story of like a friend of 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 a friend who is a Broadway performer who saw a performance on the uh, a performance in the space who has a ghost story of her own. Now, I will again be sharing the link from Playbill in 2010 when they were allowed to walk through the penthouse. It is phenomenal and it has some really fun stories. So, after this refurb, they they still like left the box devoted to him, but like the stage manager called the show from the boxes. The boxes are now night. You can't really see it in them. The orchestra will use them or like the sound guy uses them. Uh, so women on the verge of a nervous breakdown was a brand new musical based on the Spanish film of the same name open, uh, in 2010. It did not really have an out of town. It was kind of very rushed. Um, but it starred Brian Stokes, Mitchell, Sherry and a Scott, Laura Bonatti, um, uh, Danny Bernstein, Patty Lapone, and Justin Greeny, just to name a few of the people in the show. And it was having a, a really rough tech process. When I say really rough, I mean Spider-Man level rough <laughs> tech process. So they would, re- yeah, they would rehearse during the days. And at night, the show would just fall apart. Oh when I personally saw it, the set pieces would sometimes, so they used every aspect of tech that David Belasco developed was used in that show. There was an elevator, there were treadmills, there were motorized set pieces, but like things would get put on stage incorrectly and something would like be pulled out and then rip a part of a wall off or like one of the the lanes of treadmills wouldn't work or like something 
awful what happened when I saw it, like four pieces of set just literally cracked in half at the matinee that I saw. Um, I feel like I feel like the the play that goes wrong was based off of this performance. I mean, yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And so at one evening performance, uh, this performer, I'm not going to use her name because she asked me not to, uh, comes to see the show and she has a seat in the uh, uh, just off of the aisle in the mezzanine and she's sitting around. There's a lot of hubbub. She gets in just before the show starts and then a gorgeous woman sits down next to her as the uh, orchestral, you know, as the overture starts, blah, blah, blah. They smile politely. The performer uh, come in and she's just like, oh, you have a lovely dress. Um, and the woman just smiled, nodded and smiled. And the show started and almost immediately went to pieces. In the second scene, two pieces collide. The show had to stop. They had to reset. The lights came up. And the woman just feels the woman to her left lean over. The performer feels the woman lean over to her left and say, they should have never gotten rid of a seat. And when she turns to ask who, she's gone. The woman is gone. And that is the story of the Belasco Ghosts. <laughs> oh, my God. When I read that, I literally thought I was going to vomit. The tea was spilt, like I had to honey. set. The tea was spilt. Was, she she brought in a to, she brought in a uh, a home cup of tea. She had it in a little thermos, and she was sip sip sipping that. And she was like, "There are f- there are a few other stories I found of people interacting with the woman in blue. Normally, she just stands from afar and doesn't always interact with people. Um, sometimes you can tell she'll interact with women backstage, and she is not happy that they're there. So I don't know if she's a little vengeful, a little jealous. Um, I love that. But yeah, that is that is one of probably ten stories I found of people actually interacting with the woman in blue. She typically does not care for the show. She'll be standing in the back of the house, something, or someone will be walking through during a delivery, and she. She's just sitting there in the house or something or standing in the house. And so it's really interesting. So it's one of those, it's like, I'm sure anyone could explain away any of these situations, but, um, uh, the, the, um, the performer, I will just say, I'm not going to say her name, but she is a prolific performer. And so people would probably think that she's nuts, but the musical wouldn't last long. And after its official opening, um, it closed, uh, and Kathy Griffin came in and do a, would do a one-month sit-down, and for that performance, David, and for then on, David Blasco's seat was restored. <laughs> she was like, I'm not having any his, of that. Put a seat back up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they literally, his seat had been moved into the, like, into the um, duplex. Yeah, I, so I, they literally went to get it. And so, yeah, his the seat that he's in is still different to this day. They do not sell it. It has a little nameplate on it. Um, and so people like Mark Rylance, Neil Patrick Harris, Daniel Breaker uh, still have stories of interacting with him in the last five years. Uh, and so uh, just some of my sources for today are from a Curved New York article, um, New York Ghosts, the New York Times, uh, Playbill Blog, uh, Wiki, um, any of these that anybody has any interest in. There's also uh, the new Victory Theater uh, keeps a really awesome tab on all of the ghosts of Broadway. So, yeah, that's the story of the ghosts of the Belasco Theater. Way to kick it the fuck off. Thank you. It's one of those where, like, I still want to be pragmatic and be like, listen, I know we all want to be dramatic. And every theater person has that, well, I met Patty Lepone's Sardi's story. So it's like, how do you one-up meeting a celebrity? You meet a dead theater celebrity. You meet celebrity. a fucking ghost. <laughs> you meet a fucking theater ghost. <laughs> I tell you what, if I met Olive Thomas, who we will talk about in future episodes, 
Um, I would be like, Queen, tell me how to make a headdress like that. I'd be like, go Thank off. Thank you, yeah. Uh, I yeah, mean, I'd also poop my queen. pants um, because yeah, absolutely I, your fight or flight is I, going I, to give in. But um, mm-hmm. that's why I, I love the, I love I love when ghosts are petty. I love it. The petty, petty. the petty level of just like, chin to shoulder. I shouldn't have taken rid of a seat. Like, <laughs> when I read that, I threw my phone and walked out of the room because, like, I one because I thought it was being played the whole time because it came through an Instagram, and I was just like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" But also like the idea that like he walked up to give someone notes, like, "Honey, sir, you've been dead a hundred and twenty, sir, you've been dead just under a hundred years." I can't. I would be like, I am. I am a woman on the verge of a breakdown. Like I am woman on the edge because yes. <laughs> Yes. Though can I though though can I tell you I feel like uh, Charlie is gonna haunt those theaters when he is gone. I feel like Charlie's gonna give people notes in a hundred (laughs) years. But like it won't be um, it won't be like notes that make sense. You'll be like why why are his hands flailing? Like what where is this? M, have you ever interacted with a theater ghost before? Um, I did have an experience at Muhlenberg. Okay, tell us. Okay, so I can't remember what... Okay, now I'm probably going to have a bad dream tonight because he's probably going to haunt me. But it was told that there was like a groundskeeper that Mm -hmm. um, kept up a lot of the areas in this one section of um, of Muhlenberg College, which is where I went to school and Maddie and I did a summer production of Hair together there. And... um, and it was said that like he like had roses and like a rose garden and stuff like this. Do I know is any of this backed in factual evidence? Absolutely not. Learned it in college, and so I went. That must be true. Um, so I'm going with it. But I don't remember what his name was, or maybe it was a. I don't know. He may have worked in the theater. I'm not sure. But it was a gentleman that um, was part of the the college community of Muhlenberg, mm-hmm. and um, when he passed. What I was told was that his one request was that, like, please just keep my rose, my rose bushes, my rose garden, like, nice. Obviously, no one did. Uh, <laughs> and a couple of, like, you know, dorm buildings were built on top of it. And our beautiful um, uh, performing arts area, we call it the fishbowl because it literally is, like, all glass. It's gorgeous. It's a fishbowl. Yeah, yeah, it's gorgeous. And um, there are times when... Um, when just like mechanical things just or like electronic things just go wild and there's a lot of big dance studios in in that same area of Mm -hmm. i also like lived in a dorm that was like right there and we had a lot of like spooky experiences too where like my friend is convinced that our other friend who lived with us like was possessed for a minute because she doesn't remember anything that happened I will gather those information and bring it back another day possibly but like there was a lot of weird stuff that happened in our building and um but I didn't experience it but there was this one time I was doing a rehearsal for I think it was a dance piece in one of these big um rehearsal rooms dance studios and all of a sudden like I don't know if someone like mentioned a ghost or what but all of a sudden the lights just started going haywire and we had only had on like the big like house lights of Mm -hmm. the room but Mm -hmm. all of a sudden like those lights like dimmed 
And just like the performance spotlights, because you could do dance shows in there, so yep. they did have professional mm-hmm. lighting mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. Just those lights would like come in, and like one just like shone on me, and I was just in this pool of light, and it was just weird. And then all the other lights came up, and it was just like, okay, so we talked about him, and he was just like, I'm here watching your little show, I'm watching your little rehearsal. Can't talk shit about me. And it was just like, okay, thank you, thank you for thank you for protecting us. Thank you for um, making yourself known. But I remember thank you for your gift. I remember us being like, okay, and that's a wrap on today's rehearsal. Uh, <laughs> M two words, absolutely not. Absolutely, absolutely not. <laughs> two words, absolutely not. <laughs> well, M, thank you for coming on this first journey with me. I am so happy to be here. Let's buckle up. Let's have a couple more miles in this. Let's do this. And I think uh, we're going to have our social media in the post show. So I want to hear anyone out there who has a creepy, ooky, spooky Broadway or your own local theater story. Send them to us and maybe we'll read them on air. Maybe we'll have to do that for a bonus show. We'll read other people's ghost stories. That would be so much fun. I would love that. Well, Maddie, thank you so much for telling the first story. Congratulations. You did it. Thank you. We did it. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Exit Stage Death is brought to you by Dreamer Productions. This episode was audio engineered and edited by Maddie Limerick. And our theme is Antisocial Dance Party by Brett Eagleston from the Let's Rewatch podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Stage Death Podcast. On Twitter at Stage Death Pod. And send us your favorite chilling theater stories at Stage Death Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Patreon.com at Dreamer Productions, where your donation of $2 a month keeps quality content coming your way on your favorite podcatcher app. Join us for more chilling true stories on the next episode of Exit Stage Death.